Amen. So the Bible readings today, we have two of them. First one is Psalm 103, which is easy to find, dead center of the Bible there, page 599, I think, in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 103, and we're reading the whole, the whole lot of it. Starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Then we're jumping right to the back of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, page 1155. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Now we're kind of jumping in mid-argument here. The question has been asked, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? So we start at verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body... There is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. 
The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly one. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks, Beck, for for reading those two passages. Um, I'm particularly attracted to Psalm 103 because it's so positive. And I'm a hospital chaplain. And I want to be as positive as I possibly can be. And there is much to be positive about in this psalm. But I've got to say, there are parts of it that leave me feeling very uncomfortable, almost as though my experience of life is actually not letting me be as positive as David is being here. Yes, it is a psalm of David, but we're not sure what the occasion is, as we are with many of his other psalms. Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Whatever the occasion of this psalm, David is giving his heart a rallying cry. In fact, it's the rallying cry to end all rallying cries. He addresses his own soul. Um, For him in that day, his soul, he would have understood it as the seat of his reason and his emotion. In other words, he's wanting all his decisions and all his affective responses to be involved with his spirit praising his God. And he addresses his own soul to cut loose. It's almost as though though, soul-level praise isn't really enough. It's almost like he's asking every fibre of his being to praise his God. He draws breath for a moment. And we've got to remember that David's the anointed king of Israel. He widens the scope of his audience to include every single person in the nation he leads. And we need to remember that Psalms is kind of a songbook for the nation of Israel. Um, The corporate worship of Yahweh, 
the God who reveals himself to Moses as the one who will be who he will be, the promise-keeping covenant God who's going to reveal himself progressively over the course of history in ways that prove his faithfulness in the face of human stubbornness and hardness of heart. David's seeming relentless positivity is something I want to embrace wholeheartedly. He forgives all our sins. What an amazing truth that is. But I sense an enormous tension in me because I've just spent a number of weeks trying to disciple a young guy who's been with me for a short season, who I was paged to after an emergency. He tried to take his own life because he had let his God down. He could not believe that God could forgive him again. And rather than embrace the truth of that and find grace and life and blessing, he chose to try and take his own life. And it wasn't the first time this had happened. So something in me is going, well, the Lord forgives all our sins. But something in me is going, but that's not the experience of so many, even those who are trying to call on your name, Lord. And how can we be positive about the healing of our diseases if we die in the end? There's enormous tension in what people who like to write long treatises call the now and the not yet. A number of people who I connect with are struggling with depression, chronic illness, family crisis. There are myriad illustrations of these, not just from my experience up at the hospital, but in my own life, and I'm sure there's a strong resonance in your story, maybe your personal story, but certainly your wider family, a strong resonance with either one or both of the points that David makes about forgiveness and healing. I was at the New College lectures the other week given by uh, our Archbishop, Glenn Davies, and Catholic Archbishop Anthony Fisher. And Archbishop Davies, in his own inimitable style, with a twinkle in his eye, reminded everyone in the room that death is certain and that each person present, from the youngest to the oldest, was in various stages of decrepitude. It was said within the context of a broader discussion of climate change and how Christians should express their hope in God in the public sphere, in their day-to-day. Death. It's the thing that no one can deny, and it's the downer. It's the thing that reminds us of our limitations. And when we go to a funeral, the person presiding will often say, well, it's time, it's a time for us to remember our own mortality. For me, though, often all I can hear are those words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. They're so final 
They're so bleak. There are many things that could be said about Psalm 103, about its structure, about its tone, about its repeated words. And for the geeks among, amongst us, there are chiasms galore in this particular psalm that point to uh, important ideas. But what I'd like to focus on today is really just two aspects of the psalm itself. Firstly, God's remembering that we are dust. And secondly, his steadfast love. So we're going to focus on dust and love. Actually, remembering. God's remembering and love. Um, if there's something that I'd rather pass lightly over in a passage of scripture when I'm reading my Bible, I know enough about myself now to try and push back on that. Because if I'm passing lightly over something, it tells me something about my heart. And for me, verse 14 is one of those verses. The Lord remembers that we are dust. What do we do with dust? We let it gather on our bookshelves. It gets up our noses and makes us sneeze. If we clean wax and polish it pro pro properly, it seems to be gone in an instant. In another dimension, it reminds us of lack of rain. It reminds us of topsoil being picked up in the wind and blanketing a city. I don't know if you remember that dust storm a few years back where this kind of phalanx of orange dust just came like a massive wave and covered the city, blotting out the sun almost. Well, I also remember, I think I saw it on Facebook a few weeks back, a very heartbreaking and poignant picture of a farmer kneeling in the dust bowl that was his dam eyes closed, hands clasped in prayer to God for rain. That's dust. It reminds us of parching hot summers, of bushfires. It makes us think of climate change. It makes us think of young women who'd rather be in school than making impassioned speeches to the UN. Whatever association you make, my point about dust is this. There's no real, real association with dust that resonates positively in our hearts and minds in this culture. That's the problem. So when I read God remembers we are dust, I go, well, gee, God, thanks. At an outside chance, you may well be the same. How do you read your Bible? I would say that when this happens... It's a real opportunity. We need to hear scripture well at these moments, particularly when it uses language we find difficult to hear in our culture. If you've read a bit of scripture, you may remember the word dust from Genesis 3. After the fall, God pronounces curses on Adam and Eve. And he says this in verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. It's hard to hear dust as anything but 
in the context of judgment. Insignificant, worthless, impermanent, associated with hardship and toil, our farmers are doing it tough. We're praying for rain. It comes in spitters and spatters. We get rain on the coast here and we complain about runoff into, the, into, the, into our beaches that will make it hard for us to swim for a few days. But in the country, some parts haven't seen rain for years. All it is is dust with no topsoil because it's been blown away. Again, no positive association with dust. But it's very significant that chapter 3 of Genesis is not the first time that dust is mentioned. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 is where it first is. Moses writes these words. The Lord God formed a man, Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. There's no getting around it. The word for dust is exactly that, dry, loose earth. But something checks in myself when I hear that, for I want to be formed of something slightly more significant, slightly more worth something. But if we take time to reflect, we may be reminded or may even begin to see that actually it's a blessing to be made from something of no consequence. Let me... Let's just uh, think a little bit about this now. Chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis actually helps us to understand our personhood under God. Firstly, it helps us to understand that we're physical, that we're created, subject to physical limitations. Secondly, it helps us understand that we share our createdness with other things in creation. Physical beings subject to physical limitations, yes, but sharing our physicality with the rest of creation as well. And thirdly, it reminds us, along with all creation, that we cannot and would not exist without God, without his creative act. It seems obvious, but but we can forget so easily. And fourthly, and perhaps most significantly, it also reminds us that our life depends totally on the gift of God, on him giving us breath and vitality, that we are not our own, we are not independent agents. Back back to verse 14 of our psalm again. David said, God knows how we were formed. He knows our frame. The idea is that he knows our purpose, that we're dependent, that we're vulnerable, that we're limited, that we're relying in each moment for each breath as a gift for life itself to be sustained by him. I'm I'm daily confronted by my own powerlessness under God And one such moment was last Saturday morning when I was paged to the women's hospital to attend what effectively was a stillbirth. 
the baby had just uh, a short time of depending on God for its very next breath. It never got to pray. It never got to ask God for anything. It gasped its last breath and died. And then I attended. And what do you do when you're called by a couple in deep pain to share their deep pain? You sit with them. You hear the story. You share their tears. But that's it. The compassionate love of a father reflected in the face of a physical father and his tears for his child. Each breath is a gift from our Heavenly Father and our createdness from dust reminds us of this amazing fact. But one thing I can't emphasise enough is that everything that we can glean from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, all those four points that I just outlined about our dependentness on God, is actually before the fall. None of what I've been talking about relates to judgment or punishment, and we haven't even talked yet about what it means to be made in the image of God. In fact, as the Lord himself says at the end of chapter 1, everything that we've said about humanity in chapter 2, verse 7, is actually very good in the Lord's eyes. Not just good, but very good. And, and I personally hear that as a bit of a rebuke because I don't like to think of myself as made from dust. But if I go back to scripture and I do a bit of work, I actually see that the Lord has, he wants to bless me. And my own pride gets in the way of that. In our fallenness, we do swing wildly between hard-heartedness and a false sense of guilt. If that's what happens to you, as it does to me at times, you need to hear these words of love. For that is what I've come to see that they are. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. What I believe the word is whispering to us, asking us to embrace, is the truth that our limitations are actually God-given as a gift and part of his very good design. Yes, the fall has marked us in ways that we'd rather not dwell on. But our createdness means that we are purposed for a very high purpose indeed. We are designed to live day by day, moment by moment, in dependent trust on the generosity of our creator God. Scripture's verdict is true. All of us are hardwired to try and justify our own actions when we do wrong. Just the other week, I was having a bit of an argument with my dear wife here, and she pointed out something that uh, was absolutely true, but what my instinct was in my sinfulness. 
immediately to say, well, your daughter does that too. I won't tell you which one. (laughs) But that's it. We're kind of hardwired to try and justify ourselves. It's almost like a default. If we seek to justify ourselves, we'll be nowhere because the only one who can truly justify us is Jesus. We die because of sin. From dust we were formed and to dust we will return. The flourishing flower of youth and its sense of impregnability, maybe even bravado in its flourishing, does get forgotten and our creeping sense of decrepitude, as the Archbishop so helpfully reminded me, as it advances... It is like a flower of the field that fades and dies and the wind does blow over it and remembers its place no more. But there's a but. And wherever there's a but, you need to take notice in scripture. And this is the but. The Lord remembers we are dust and his love is with those who fear him. His love is with those who have reverent awe towards their God, those who perceive him as he truly is, a faithful promise keeper who knows nothing that that God has revealed about his character, his faults. The very God who we've talked about revealed himself to Moses and spoke his name, Yahweh, the Lord, I will be who I will be, He revealed himself to Moses in this way right after his people Israel had fashioned a golden calf to worship instead. He had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He had revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, the one who will be who will be, right after they all knelt down and worshipped a golden calf. The very God who spoke his name and then fleshed it out for Moses by saying, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, then in these last days fleshed it out even more perfectly in the person of his son Jesus. And in that now and not yet overlap of the ages, we we really do feel the tension incredibly keenly as God works out his plan in accordance with his goodwill and purpose. And many of us want want to pray with David where he writes elsewhere, how long, O Lord? But the yearning of David here to offer unalloyed praise to God for his faithfulness to his promises actually points forward. It points forward to the fact that there can only ever be a resounding yes to those promises that David is talking about in the true king, in the person of the Lord Jesus. It also points to the unalloyed glory to come, the love and compassion that our Heavenly Father exerts in Christ to save us is the very love and compassion he's in the process now 
of crowning us with and will fully crown us with on that day. I love the fact that we talked about being crowned in one of the songs earlier. To be aware that we are in the process of emerging as the much-loved and redeemed people of God crowned with his very own love and compassion that he demonstrated so perfectly in Christ is an amazing truth. The diseases we are healed of and are healed uh, in Christ uh, as we take part in his resurrected life, a healing that we get a foretaste of but will ultimately only fully experience on that day when all the effects of sin have been dealt with completely. And with David, we can only say in Christ that it is true that as far as the east from the west is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David, as king of Israel in his own fallenness, is yearning and proclaiming prophetically the amazing truth that God has put away and will fully put away all our sins in the one true king, Jesus. With David and the whole company of heaven, that day, when it comes, the whole of creation will, in Christ, be able to say, praise the Lord, my soul.